0: me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Numbers. Uh, we're going to be looking tonight really at two chapters, chapter 16 and 17, as we make our way through uh, this study that we're calling uh, Gospel in the Wilderness. And uh, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, if you didn't bring yours with you, you'll find our text tonight on page uh, 124. I'll we'll give you just a minute uh, to be flipping there. Uh, it won't be long Uh, Until you see it, Uh, there's a little bit of more chill in the evening air. Leaves are starting to dry up just a little bit. There's actually fall decorations starting to appear uh, on porches and things like Christmas decorations are up at Lowe's, right? Um, Which means that if you're on social media, you're about to get bombarded with about 10 years worth of uh, videos from Jimmy Kimmel Live, where 10 years ago he started this tradition where he challenged parents to take a video on November 1st, the morning of November 1st, sitting their children down and telling them that the night before they ate all of their Halloween candy. You'll see the kids on the couch, and the mom or the dad will be sitting there, and and they will say, now, you know how, how mommy and daddy stay up later. And, you know, we, we had been walking around and, and we were really hungry. And, well, we didn't mean to, but last night when you were asleep, we ate all of your candy. And you start to see the look on the children's faces. And the quivering lip. And you start to see that they're shocked, appalled, and deeply saddened. And you'll start to see the realization, and they move through the stages of candy grief, right? Where they realize that it's gone, and that grief turns into rage. They've been waiting so long, they worked so hard, and now you have taken it from me. And if you have seen those videos, maybe like me, you, you start to laugh. And then the more the video goes on, you start to get uncomfortable. Not because of the cruelty of the joke. I'm okay with that. (laughs) But that you start to look and you start to ask yourself the question, is this kind of a one-off or is what we're starting to see in this child, does it go much deeper than just candy? And is maybe this an insight to what maybe home life could be like? And, and, and then I start to get any, even more uncomfortable because it starts to feel too familiar. And it starts to make me wonder about my own heart. Because if it's true of children and their Halloween candy, and it's true of the Israelites in our text, then it's true for me, and I bet it's true for you as well, and it's this, that we are, in our natures, rebels. And most of the time, if not all of the time, there's really no cause for it. That's what we're going to see in our text, but before we read, let's ask God to show us deep and revealing things about ourselves tonight, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Uh, But even more, may he reveal true and greater things about himself. Let's ask God to do that through his spirit uh, as we gather together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask that you would meet us in the middle of all our distractions and hurried life. We ask that you would calm us and help us to hear you. That you would meet us in the middle of our disbelief, our shaky belief, our wondering if we believe, or our doubts as to why we should believe. Meet us in our anger and our anxiousness and our arrogance. Meet us in our poshness and our poverty. Meet us in our loneliness. Meet us in our fear. Please, Lord, just meet with us. As we're about to read in our text, you are a God who dwells among a rebellious people. So, gracious God, we ask as a rebellious people that you will dwell in your spirit in and among us. Be merciful, we pray, and show us the extent of your grace towards us. Speak to our rebellious hearts. And draw us close to you. So, Father, we gather and we boldly ask. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name, amen. Numbers chapter 16, we're going to read the first 11 verses, then we're going to skip over uh, and read chapter 17. Here is God's word for us tonight. Now, Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dothan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Pellah, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You've gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, "'Here now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that God, the God of Israel, has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also?' Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Chapter 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, one from each of the father's house, from all their chiefs according to their father's houses. Twelve staffs. Write each man's name on a staff. Write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi." For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and all the chiefs gave them their staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses, twelve staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among their staffs, and Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of testimony. And on the next day, Moses went into the tent of testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds." Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel. And they looked. And each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings against me lest they die. Thus did Moses as the Lord commanded him. So he did. And the people of Israel said to Moses, behold, behold we perish. We're undone. We're all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm beginning to believe that at the heart of every rebellion is a sense of entitlement. I'm beginning to believe that at the heart of any rebellion is the sense of entitlement. Deep down beneath the surface, get past what's being said, get past what's being done, peel back the layers of the heart, if you will, and what you'll see is a sense of entitlement. Genesis 3 type entitlement. Go back to the Garden of Eden where our first parents lived. When Satan first tempted Eve and Adam, he picked at their sense of entitlement. He challenged the very character and nature of God. He sought to convince them that God was withholding his best from them and they deserved more. God was not good. And he certainly was not good to them. That was Satan's line of argument. And Adam and Eve bought it. They went there. The underlying energy behind original sin and fall was a sense, this sense of entitlement. That God was holding back from them. That something was rightfully theirs. And like a Kimmel parent, God took it and was withholding it from them. It's underneath and all throughout the text we just read. It's the fuel behind what the scriptural heading in my Bible, and possibly yours as well, calls Korah's Rebellion. We're going to go into more detail as we move along. But if we would have read the entire 16th chapter, you'd discover that you actually have three rebellions going on. Three rebellions, two of which were occurring at the same time here at the beginning of chapter 16, being described under the one heading of Korah's Rebellion. The first is a religious rebellion about priestly power. The second is a political rebellion and a questioning of rightful leadership. Both, both are about entitlement. The first rebellion is among the Levites. Remember that God had set apart the tribe of Levi for all things worship-related regarding the tabernacle. Within the Levites, you had a special group, the descendants of Aaron, who were the priestly tribe or the priestly group among the Levites. The Levites were about all things tabernacle related. Remember, the tabernacle is the big tent that was in the middle of kind of the people of Israel. Remember that all of the 12 tribes were given specific spots to be, to camp in the, in the uh, camp of Israel. That you had some that were assigned to be in the north, you had some that were assigned to be in the south, some to the east, some to the west. And in the middle was the tabernacle. But surrounding the tabernacle, acting as a buffer between the people of God and the tabernacle, was the tribe of Levi. They were given this special job. And yet, and yet, there were some some among them who wanted more. They wanted for themselves that priestly privilege assigned to, reserved for, A very few, Aaron and his direct descendants. Korah's father was the brother of Amram, the father of Moses and Aaron. So Korah is a cousin. And he, along with 250 chieftains from among the other other Levites, confronted cousin Moses and cousin Aaron saying this, Y'all gone too far. For all the congregation is holy. Every one of them and the Lord's among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above everybody else? Do you hear it? Entitlement. We're just as good as you. Why do you reserve the best job for yourself? We are just as good and just as capable and just as able to do it. We want more. That's the first rebellion. And as Moses is hearing the entitled cries of the Levites, he starts to hear other voices chime in. There's another group. We didn't read the specifics of their rebellion, but in verse 1, you see the names. It's Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On the son of Peloth, sons of Reuben. It says that they too took men. In other words, here's another tribe coming at Moses and Aaron. From another angle, but the same issue, rebellious spirits fueled by entitlement. You may remember from our Sunday morning series in Genesis that Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. By birthright, he and his tribe should have been the leaders of the tribes of Israel. But he and his subsequent kinsmen were demoted because of Reuben's sin of sleeping with one of his father's wives. So now Reuben's descendants are making a play for what they believe is rightfully theirs. They believe they are entitled to lead this exhibition. After all, in their minds, Moses is inept and he's illegitimate as a leader. So, they are just as capable, if not more so. So, they are entitled to leave. So, they too, as Korah and a portion of the Levitical tribe, rebel against Moses and Aaron. Rebellion is fueled by a sense of entitlement. If entitlement is at the heart of rebellion, and I think it is, there's an alarm that will sound and give a warning it's grumbling. Just as a canary in a coal mine stops singing when carbon monoxide levels rise to dangerous levels, just as a smoke detector in your home sets off high-pitched squeal when smoke is in the home, the sounds of grumbling rise when entitlement and rebellion are in the air. This isn't new. If you go back and you look earlier in the books of Moses, you have the people of God enslaved in Egypt. They're in misery, and they groan because of their slavery, and we get that, right? I mean, we understand why they are crying out. We understand why they are groaning. If we were enslaved, we would groan as well. God heard their groans, and he had compassion on them. And Moses said, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the text turns, and the movement begins, and you start to see that God is determined to lead his people out of Israel to the promised land. These Israelites, think about it, they see God go to work on their behalf. They witnessed the plagues against the Egyptians and Pharaoh. They see and they hear the nation of Egypt, grief-stricken and wailing because they are in mourning because God struck down the firstborn of every household in Egypt and passed over the households of the Israelites. They escaped the pursuit of the superpower of their day, being led by a, a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. They saw the waters of the Red Sea stand up and form a water wall, and they walked across on dry land. And the pursuing army swallowed them up, and the water wall collapsed on top of them. And the Israelites had called out to God to save them, and he did. And they were witnesses to all these amazing things that God did to rescue them. And these same people went on a walk for three days, had trouble finding water, and it says that they started to grumble. And do you know what they did? They didn't pray to God. They didn't ask him to provide for their need. They started grumbling against Moses and the people, Exodus 15, 24, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And when they did, Moses responded and he interceded on their behalf and he cried out to God and God again provided. And you would think at that point the voices would stop, but they didn't. It just got worse. Their grumbling increased over and over. They say things like, why did you bring us out here to die? Oh, that we were back in Egypt. We we sat around pots of meat. All you could eat buffets. We had it so good. Everything that we wanted was there. Why did you bring us here? They began to rewrite their own history and glorify their enslavement. Grumbling. Remember from last week, Sean talked about how God brought them to the edge of the promised land. And they sent in scouts to look around. And when they returned, God's people listened to the negative voices. They denied the gift of the promised land. They grumbled to Moses and Aaron. And again, they said, we were better off in Egypt. Would that we have died in Egypt instead of bringing us here to die. Grumbling. It's the warning sound of rebellion. The heart of rebellion is entitlement. The warning sound of entitlement is grumbling. But I want you to see the extent of entitlement and rebellion and groaning. This is not two little isolated groups. It's pervasive through the whole camp. I told you at the beginning that there were two rebellions in the first part of the chapter. Two groups, the Levites after priestly power, the Reubenites after political power. So because of these two groups, Moses sets up two trials. To the first group, the Levites, he instructs them to have Korah and his 250 chieftain followers load up censers with fire, meet him at the tent of tabernacle the following day. Remember that only members of the true priesthood were to offer such fire before the Lord. Others risked losing their lives if they offered what was called unholy fire. Earlier in Israel's history, Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, so they are in the priestly line, they made up their own recipe, if you will, and they offered unauthorized fire before God as an act of worship, and they lost their lives because of it. Showing that even if priests offered censers in a way other than God authorized, it was punishable by death. So Moses sets up the trial. He says, I tell you what, Korah and the rest of you, why don't you go fill your censers with fire and bring it before the Lord? And if it is accepted by God, then it's true. Your claims against me and against Aaron, they're right. But if God doesn't accept your worship, then it will show that Moses and Aaron are the rightful leaders that God had designated for his people. And so he puts that challenge out, and then he sends word to the Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, to come and meet him. Verse 12 says, they refused. They sent word back. We're not coming up. You can't make us. It's a slap in the face. It's an act of defiance against Moses' authority. They accuse him of being illegitimate and apt. They said, moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. You can almost hear the forehead slap of Moses. He brought them to the promised land. They refused to go in. It wasn't that he didn't lead them there. It's that they didn't follow And yet now, now they're saying you failed to lead and he's being attacked politically because of it. It's pervasive rebellion in the camp marked by these two groups. Moses sets up two tests, the first with Korah and his followers before the tent of meeting. The second, he ends up sending word down to Dothan, to Dathan and to Abiram and the elders that fell in line behind him. He told them to come out and stand before their tents along with their families. And then he warns those who are in proximity. He basically says, if you're not with them, you may want to step away. And the people do. And then he says this in verse 28. Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and it's not by my own doing. If these men and their followers die of a natural cause, then they're right, I'm a fraud. But if God creates something new, in Hebrew it reads, creates a creation, meaning something unique, unparalleled. And Moses says, I have an idea. Let's just say that the earth opens up, swallows them while they're living, and takes them to the place of the dead known as Sheol. If that happens, then you will know that these men despised the Lord. Two groups, two tests, two punishments. No more had the words come out of Moses' mouth. than the earth opened up. Dathan and Abiram and their followers were swallowed up by the earth. And the people of Israel watched it. And then just as that happened, Just as the dust begins to settle, chorus 250 men offering their unauthorized fire start to approach the tent of the tabernacle. And fire comes down from heaven and consumes them instantly. And God's people saw it. They watched it. Right before the nation of Israel's eyes, they saw God create a creation and destroy the political enemies. Right before their eyes, they saw a consuming fire from heaven come down and obliterate the offenders of unauthorized fire. How pervasive is the rebellion? Two groups, two tests, two punishments, one response from the onlookers. Look down at chapter 16 and look at verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you have killed the people of Israel of the Lord. How pervasive is it? It's everywhere. It's with everyone. Think think about this. Think about what nonsense this is. They just saw the response from God in putting down a rebellion, and yet it is so ingrained in them, it's like muscle memory, their reaction Less than 24 hours is to grumble. It's a staggering reality. Or maybe it's not so staggering. I said at the beginning about Kimmel's Halloween candy prank that I start to get uncomfortable because it starts to hit home within my own heart. The same is true here. Think about it for a second. Think about how pervasive grumbling is in our own lives. And what it reveals about us and our views towards God and our rebellious nature. Keep in mind, it's easy to look out there in the world and the world's rejection and rebellion against God and think this passage is talking about them. It's not. It's talking about us. It's talking about the people of God. It's talking about the church. We are not immune to this. In fact, we're consumed with this. Think about the conversations in our tents, if you will. Think about the conversations around your dinner table every night. With your wife, with your children, with your roommate, if you go out with friends. Be it about school or work or church or neighbors. How much of your conversation is uplifting and respectful, say, about your boss, co-workers. How many of the conversations begin like this? You know, Mike did this incredible thing at work today. Or, you know, my my boss did the most thoughtful thing. Or be honest. Is it more likely that the conversation begins with, well, you'll never guess what happened again or you know just when I thought it couldn't get any worse I mean the audacity right kids when your parents ask you about your day does it begin with stories about your favorite teacher or about the one that teaches you the class you like the least what's your go-to When you talk about your friends at school, how many of the conversations, how many of them start with talking about the things or the people you don't like? Rather than starting the conversations about the people that you do like. Or what about the way in which we speak, say, about the church? Maybe our rebellion isn't as obvious as grumblings with unauthorized fire and censers in our hands at the entrance to the tabernacle. Maybe it happens instead with the fire that's in our belly, with coffee cups in our hands, as we get ready to walk into the sanctuary. Or maybe it happens around the communion table, as we judge the people around us. Or as we judge the people who just led us in worship, saying, you know what, they, it just really didn't get me there today. Do you see how pervasive groaning is in our lives? That we really do think we're entitled to other things, better things. That if God would only, if, if God would just fix this, right? If he, if he would change them, if he would give me what I am entitled, the world as if I want it, well, then everything would be okay. And so we grumble and we grumble and we grumble. You don't think it's hard? You don't think it's pervasive? Try it this week. Monitor your conversations around your dinner table. Monitor your conversations around the water cooler. Monitor your conversations at the coffee bar. And take note of how pervasive grumbling is. So, what's God do about it? What do you do? What do you do with the people like us, right? If you're God? Well, here's one of the things God does. One of the things God does is to put things in place so that the Israelites won't forget. Or should I say, it won't be easy to forget. Immediately after he incinerates the 250 people who had tried to usurp Aaron's authority as priests, he tells Moses to go have Eleazar to go and collect the censers. Now, Eleazar is a son of Aaron, a brother of Nadab and Abihu, both of whom offered unauthorized fire and were killed. Eleazar just watched as 250 people, right, were killed by God because of offering unauthorized fire. And God tells Moses, have Eleazar go out and gather the censers. And he tells them to hammer them out into plates and take those plates and affix them to the altar. Why did God do that? He did it so that every time the Israelites came with their sacrifices, the sin of their rebellion was right there in front of them. To remind them that one of the reasons they were bringing their sacrifices was because of their rebellious hearts. That's one of the things that God did. But the second thing that God does was to take the second part of the text we read, when he got started, lest there be any confusion about who God had called to lead his people, he tells Moses to get the leader of each tribe to bring out one of their staffs, one of their walking sticks. And he says, write, write the name of the leader of each tribe on there and bring them to me. Each staff represents each tribe. And he told Moses to bring them to the tent of meeting and leave them there overnight. And he says that whichever staff sprouts, that will be the staff of the man I have chosen. In other words, take dead sticks. And from whichever dead stick I make life come from, that's the one I've chosen. Now look back at chapter 17 and look at verse 8. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. And Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and each man took his staff. God made it clear. There's one appointed by me who is to be your priest before me. The one who intercedes on your behalf. Now, one thing to take note of is this. This is not at this point where Aaron now turns around, takes the mantle and goes, Well, (laughs) guess I'm the guy. Uh. -uh. Go back and look at chapter 16, verse 42. You want to know how pervasive rebellion had become among God's people? We looked at the first two. Here's the third. This is right after God's put down the rebellion of the Levites, the Reubenites, and we said the people's response the next day was to blame it all on Moses and Aaron, right? Look at verse 42. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. Okay, full stop. Who's the they? Who's the they, and why are they turning towards the tent? the place where God dwelt among them. I went back and I brushed off a little bit of my Hebrew. And I believe the way the Hebrew reads, it is the people of Israel turning towards the tent. And I don't think it's a good turning. In Hebrew, it reads as a continuous action connecting to a previous event. In other words, when it reads, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, they, the congregation, same subject, turned towards the tent. They had assembled against and they turned. In other words, I think their rebellion was on full display and they were turning or they were bowing up on God. And when they turned towards the tent, They get more than they bargained for because the glory of the Lord appeared before them by way of pillar of cloud. And God tells Moses and Aaron, get away from the midst of the congregation. (laughs) The last time God told people to get away, what happened? He sent destruction. And he now looks at Moses and Aaron and he goes, boys, y'all may want to move. And Moses knew exactly what that meant. And he looks at Aaron and he says, Aaron, grab your censer and go fill it with fire and go and make atonement for the people. Make atonement for them quickly. Think about that. The people of God had turned against him. The people of God had turned against God's appointed priest. And here you have the rejected priest standing between the people and God, making atonement on their behalf. God's appointed through God's means, making atonement for rebellious people, lest they be destroyed. Does it sound familiar? Did you hear what happened to the staff of God's appointed priest in chapter 17? The one who made atonement for God's people. The dead stick from which God brought forth life and made it bud with almonds. God told Moses to take that staff and bring it into the tabernacle. And there it was kept. It was kept along two former signs of God's provision. Along with the broken tablets of God's covenantal law. Along with the golden jar of manna that represented God's provision rest the staff of God's anointed just as God put the plates of rebellion on the altar to keep their sin before them God put and kept the symbol of his anointed priest before them I am your God I am your God who time after time makes provision for my people whom I love even amidst your rebellion against me that's who I What's our rod of Aaron? For the Christian, what's our rod of Aaron? Answer it this way. From what dead stick did God bring forth life? When God's anointed hung on a dead stick outside of Jerusalem as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, how did life come from that? came 3 days later when Jesus rose from the grave and put death to death. Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid paints this beautiful picture. He says, "What is more, in the resurrection of Jesus we see the almond branch blossom. Spring is in the air in the empty tomb, and Christ rising." The first fruits of the harvest of eternal life have appeared and their scent is unmistakable. Fellow rebels, when you see the dead stick which once held God's anointed, remember that God made life come from that. And oh, may we catch a whiff of almonds in the air let's pray father would you give us such a whiff tonight a whiff of your glory a whiff of your grace a whiff of your provision for us through Christ he is your anointed high priest. He is the one that you, that you set aside and said, Go and redeem my people. And it was Christ who went and gave his life as a punishment for our rebellion. He took your wrath upon himself so that we would not be consumed by it. It killed him. He was really dead in the grave. In Sheol. And yet he came out. He came out three days later. You brought life from that dead stick. You made it bud and flourish. And so, Father, I pray that your people would look to Christ and look to him alone. And may it be a sweet aroma in in our nose. And then may our life be a sweet aroma to you because of his merits, not ours. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.